Hey, Jeff, how are you? Very well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so, hey, listen, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to chat and, and do this interview with us. Um, I would love to hear um, a little bit about the ultimate vision of Lendu. You know, what was the thinking behind Lendu when you started it? And um, and we can go from there. Sounds good. Um, okay. So, uh, we founded Lendu with the idea that there are hundreds of millions of people uh, in the emerging market who can't access financial services. And uh, we, we we felt that technology could solve this. Um, and our mission is to help another billion people get access to financial services. Um, but that's not how we, we, we started out. Originally, uh, we were technology entrepreneurs. Uh, we had started a, a couple businesses. And um, as a result of that, we had employees all over the world who kept coming to us asking for, for loans, which didn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, we knew they were employable. We knew they were educated. We trusted them. Their incomes were going up. But the local financial institutions uh, couldn't figure out how to, how to, how to deal with them. So as we, as we dug into the, that problem, we became fascinated by it. First fascinated because it's such a large problem with hundreds of millions of people, places like Brazil and Nigeria, Indonesia, India, moving into the, the global economy. <clears throat> and, then, and then also fascinating because uh, the, the approach of using the community works. Um, uh, Professor Yunus, he actually got a Nobel Prize for, with microfinance where he involved the community in the underwriting process. And what, what, what we realized was that that community was going to be digitally connected. And our theory, our hypothesis for, for Lendo was that by looking at the data generated by the individual and by the community with their smartphone, we could identify who are the, the good borrowers, who are the trustworthy people in the community, and, and are people who they say they are. So our first approach was to, uh, to uh, approach some banks, try to get them to issue some loans, um, and, and uh, use the data from those loans to build algorithms. Uh, but of course, to do that, you need a lot of bad loans. Uh, and we kind of got lost out of the room uh, in, in approaching um, these, these various financial institutions. So it became clear pretty quickly that we needed to launch our own lending companies to get the data to build these algorithms. So in, uh, in hmm. January 2011, uh, we, we launched... Uh, Lendo. By March, we were issuing loans, and um, uh, before long, we were issuing loans in uh, in the Philippines, in Mexico, and Colombia, and um, gathering that data needed to build those the predictive algorithms. Got it. Um, so going back to one of the points you made, you mentioned that the local FIs just couldn't deal with this sort of new set of digitally connected consumers. Just what were some of the issues that were plaguing uh, these banks? I mean, what was really the big problem that was plaguing them? Well, one of the, one of the big problems uh, is a lack of a traditional credit infrastructure. And when I say traditional, I mean traditional in the sense of uh, how lending in, in the developed market has worked over the last 30 years. Uh, in, in, you know, in Illinois, if you want to get a loan, um, they're going to check the the credit bureau, and, um, and that that approach works pretty well uh, in the developed market. The problem is those those 
the credit bureau builds that score based on past lending activity, um, and uh, building launching a credit bureau takes takes years. Um, in most of the world, there isn't a credit bureau, or to the extent there is a credit bureau, uh, it's it doesn't have uh, good coverage. Very few few of the businesses and individuals are actually uh, in the credit bureau, or the data that's in there is not accurate. Um, so, so uh, if you want to use the approach that, a, that banks have used over the last 30 years in the emerging markets, you, you're going to be able to serve um, a very small portion of the population. And that's reflected by the fact that in most developing countries, about 5% of the population have services from traditional financial institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's the big problem. Now, the, the good news is that for hundreds of years, lending worked. And it would really work uh, at a local level based on your reputation, based on how you are known in, in the community. Um, and what we're doing is we're, we're taking those techniques, but algorithmically uh, uh, doing it at a, at a global scale. Mm -hmm. um, got it. And you had mentioned that um, you, know, you started uh, – you first started by actually issuing these loans um, to again build up the data for for the credit algorithms. What was sort of the impetus then to switch towards sort of a, um, a, a I guess white label strategy isn't quite the right word, but uh, more towards a strategy where you partner with banks. I mean, was there what was the uh, the, the impetus there? Well, the the um, uh, the big part was about the mission. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we we want to impact a, a billion people. And uh, you know, we felt that the fastest way to do that was to partner with banks. Um, uh, and we don't just partner with banks. We, 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 uh, our technology is used by non-bank lenders, like peer-to-peer -peer platforms, startups, alternate finance companies, uh, banks uh, who are taking deposits and, and, and regulated, tend to be a little more conservative, and telcos who have customers uh, and have seen their average revenue per customer start to flatten out as as um, mobile penetration has has reached in some cases over 100%, and um, and the voice calls or uh, even the data is starting to be commoditized. Um, so they're looking mm -hmm. for additional revenue streams. So so we felt that we could impact more people's lives faster by partnering with the lending uh, with with the lender. The the, the second uh, reason to partner with the lender is. Financial services is a regulated end, uh, industry, and we knew as a startup we were very good at slinging the code around. We were very good at building systems. We were really, really good at the data science. Um, but startups tend not to be good at at rigorous process around regulation, um, especially in some of these countries where you know you can you can go into. We went to Indonesia and we talked to three regulatory experts, um, all preeminent regulatory experts, and they gave us four mutually exclusive answers on the only way to, to uh, lend in Indonesia. Um, so oh, wow. so you know, we, we, we felt that um, uh, working with, with lenders uh, was the right way to go. What we didn't know was whether we would continue to have our own lending operation to push the technology forward. Um, and it turns out that by having a lending company other lenders are are skeptical of you, so we uh, we decided to shut down the lending companies or or sell them off, um, so that our partners didn't feel that we might someday compete with them, and that's allowed us to add uh, add 
uh, lenders in now we're you know, over over 15 countries uh, where we're working with uh, with lenders to um, administer credit. Got it. Now um, going to sort of the uh, the secret sauce, which is these uh, as, as described as being non-traditional data sources. Could you talk a little bit about you know what these non-traditional data sources are and what characteristics you're specifically looking for um, from from the data that you're getting? Sure. So uh, at the raw data level, it's 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 the data, it's the digital footprint. It's uh, you know what what uh, ha uh, how a phone is used, who you're interacting with. Um, uh, it's the data on the phone and passing through the phone. Um, we over the last five years at Lendo uh, have identified a variety of uh, about a thousand features, um, which we which we thought might be predictive. Uh, we're constantly testing and adding new features that that may be predictive. Now, at a broad level, those those features break down into two categories. One is behavioral, um, you know, such as when, what time of day do you start using your phone, uh, or um, uh, how many apps do you have installed on your phone? Those are behavioral. What websites do you visit? Um, uh, and then there there are social. Things like how many friends do you have? Are they close friends? Are they loose friends? Do they get back to you quickly? Uh, what's your ratio of close friends to loose friends? To uh, um, uh, your loose friends? Um, uh, the the, the uh, and who are they? So the the social element we found consistently to be predictive, and the behavioral there are elements there that are that are predictive. And what we've done now so the, these these features that go into our algorithm. Um, vary in complexity. One feature can be incredibly simple, like how how long have you been online, based on all the evidence we can find. Um, you know, very simple feature. Uh, but another one is it, it could be very complex, like what's the summation of all the interactions we know of of all the of all the people you've interacted with. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and what's the strength? You know, what's the strength of your network? So that that could be thousands and thousands of of, of messages. Uh, are used in that calculation. So, so the um, uh, th these thousand features or so are behavioral and social. They're simple and complex, um, and then they're they're uh, they're chosen using two methods. One is hypothesis. So. We'll talk to you know we've talked to loan officers, behavioral economists, computational anthropologists, um, really anyone who would give us the time of day, to come up with things that we thought might be predictive. So, for example, uh, even before we launched, we talked to a, uh, a a microfinance loan officer, and he said, "Yeah, you know, my better borrowers they they all get up they all get up early." But I don't know if that's true. Interesting. But what well, <laughs> we can create it we create a feature that says, in local time, how how early do they start getting online? That's a feature, um, and you know if, you, if, if most people are anything like the people I know, you know they wake up and they check their messages, right? So, so you, you know we know when the phone started to move or when it was when it was when it was uh, engaged. That's that's a feature that's driven by an expert's opinion, and then with that feature we can then show is this predictive? This can this be used as an input into the algorithm? We let the we let the data tell us. Um, whether whether it's it's useful, and we don't we use a subset of the data so that we can then test it against the larger population, and because we have 
loans from all over the world, um, thousands and thousands of loans, we're able to we're able to, uh, to to determine how that feature or if that feature can be used. The other way we we add features is we let the system tell us. So um, the, the the machine uh, learning identifies uh, identifies patterns and says, you know, here's something that appears to correlate um, with 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 repayment. Um, and uh, we then look at it and say, well, can we explain to ourselves why this might be might be predictive? Uh, and if we can come up with a theory, uh, then we then we put it in. Um, now those 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 features can be quite complex in that they uh, with big data different things interact with each other. So what we found was the number of milliseconds it takes to fill out a form is not predictive. Um, what we found is the amount of time that it takes to fill out a form, a specific field of a form, relative to other form, uh, fields on the form when it comes to income is still not predictive. But when you take mm -hmm. the amount of time it takes to fill out your income question um, relative to the other questions that you answer, and then relative to your income in that market, uh, there is a clear pat nonlinear pattern. And the algorithm is able to, you know, the, the, the machine learning is able to, to, to present this. And then we're able to go back and look at the sort of the behavioral economics and the, and the, uh, the theory behind it and say, does that make sense? We can justify it. And, and that, that, uh, uh, that feature can be included in, in the, uh, the scoring process. Got it. Wow. Um, a whole host of questions stemming from that. So you'd mentioned there are, over, uh, over potentially over a thousand different uh, data cues that you guys get. Um, I guess the question that I'd have first off is, I guess, at what point does it become sort of data overloaded? At, at what point do you find that there's sort of of that thousand, there are actually hey, a hundred or 150 variables that get you 99.9% .9 of the way there, and then the rest is just extraneous. I guess where do you guys sort of draw the line there in terms of you know more versus less? Actually, most of our uh, most of our most uh, most of our algorithms use a small subset of that. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the uh, uh, yeah, the, the, there's a there's a relationship between the number of outcomes you're trying to predict, which in our case is is repayments, um, and the number of features that are used in a model. And um, you know, he, as the number of features approaches the number of outcomes, you start to get a very brittle. You get a perfect fit that doesn't hold up over time. Um, so one, so uh, the, the the techniques that that a data scientist will use is they'll uh, basically test the robustness of a subset of the features. Um, so so I think that the, the the short answer to your question is, when does the data become overwhelming? The answer is almost immediately. We're dealing mm -hmm. with so much data uh, that you know you could you could with very little training build a model and kid yourself into thinking you've got something something that works. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the 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 key is to build an infrastructure that is very rigorous in figuring out what subset of your features should you use uh, that are going to endure over time. Um, so I don't know if that, that that answers your question, but uh, you know we, the, the 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 
angle we've taken is to have a team of PhDs really battle it out and try different techniques and try techniques uh, over time um, with, with very large data sets, uh, very large data sets of outcomes uh, to make sure that, that, uh, that uh, the models hold up. Got it. I guess one question emanating from that is, uh, I, I guess, uh, in terms of actually refining the model, is, is that is, does that refining happen based on geography or certain characteristics of, of you know, of a particular borrower? How, do, how does that happen? So the the the, the models get more uh, more accurate over time as the more they're used. So every day we have more loan repayments coming in. Um, every day we're gathering more information about the community and how people are connected to each other and how they're using their phones. Um, so uh, the, the system naturally gets better over time, um, mm -hmm. uh, but you can what we call calibrate it to a specific situation. So calibration uh, could be uh, how much to weight it in an underwriting process. So you may be using other factors like demographic or ability to pay factors. Um, and, and then, you know, the more, once you've uh, seen how it works with your audience and your product, you then decide how much do you want to weight it in your underwriting process. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's part of the calibration process. Um, the, um, uh, you know, you, the Lendo score itself is essentially a willingness, it's a character score, it's a willingness to repay. And, and can be used as part of a, an underwriting process in that way. The other thing that we do is a lot of our lenders have other data uh, available to them, maybe past transactional activity, um, uh, you know, maybe they're a utility and they have utility usage um, data available. Um, the, um, the, the, uh, um, we can build a custom score, a custom algorithm, incorporating that data in. So going back to um, sort of uh, Lendo's international footprint, uh, you had mentioned that Lendo is now in 15 different countries. Could you talk a little bit about? Yeah. At, okay, got it. Um, could you talk a little bit about sort of scaling from one country to another? Um, basically, to what extent can you leverage the credit algorithms that you've built for one specific country to another country, and how much of it uh, then is built from scratch and yeah, and what kind of variance of data sources uh, sort of happens from country to country? Sure. So we uh, we we specifically designed the Lendo algorithm to uh, work anywhere. Um, the uh, our main data sources, which are uh, uh, the Android operating system, email, uh, social networks, um, these are these are uh, fairly universally deployed. And that allows us to go into a market where there is no credit information or no transactional information and um, immediately start predicting and immediately uh, uh, add value to a, to a lending operation. Um, and then it just gets, it gets better and smarter, smarter from there. But right out, out of the bat, it's useful. That said, uh, if a country has uh, a credit infrastructure, a, a credit score, you should incorporate that into the underwriting process. So there is, um, you know, there is uh, a, a process that we work with with lenders if they're already lending to figure out how do you add this to your existing lending operation for new lenders to help them figure out what other data sources are available um, 
and figure out a plan for how that gets incorporated into the decisioning process. And what we're increasingly seeing is, uh, I mean, the future of financial services is through the smartphone, um, and, uh, and, and people who use smartphones expect instant gratification. So I think you're seeing um, uh, an increased use of uh, the phone as the, as the medium to interact with the, with the consumer. Um, and the the resulting customer expectations that come with that. You know, say the same people who press a button and have an Uber show up two minutes later, uh, or or you know go on Tinder and have a date twenty minutes later, are not going to accept the idea that to get their loan they they then have to go twenty miles, wait in line at a branch, fill out some paperwork, uh, or or at least you know get their answer for their loan. That's just not not how how uh, um, smartphone users work. Got it. Um, going back to uh, sort of the FIs, um, specifically banks, I, I know you mentioned you guys also work with non-bank lenders and telcos, um, but could you talk a little bit about uh, some of the characteristics of working with bank partners, like, you know, for example, the sales cycle, time to integrate, um, you know, security audits, ba basically features that are sort of idiosyncratic to banks? Yeah, absolutely. So, so um you know, the three groups we work with, uh, the, the the fintech startups move very fast. Um, we've had you know, we've had startups deploy us in in days. Um, and so we've designed it so that technologically, uh, it's very easy to integrate. It's a documented APIs. It's it's uh, uh, tech friendly. Um, banks tend not to move at that speed. Uh, you know, they they they're taking deposits, so they're they're regulated. Uh, and they tend to tend to be uh, very cautious. Um, so uh, the uh, we we usually structure the engagement with the bank uh, so that we're able to to hold their hand more through the process. So it's a it's a longer sales cycle, and it, and it requires more sort of explanation. Um, now uh, we have a code base uh, for the Android application. We sometimes uh, offer that to the bank uh, because they're able to move faster using that code base. Uh, we sometimes host, actually will host the loan application for them. Uh, again, that allows them to, to deploy faster with the smaller teams and less resources. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they do tend to, tend to move slower. Uh, telcos um, are really, you know, each one is different um, and uh, you know, can move extremely slowly or can move fast depending on, on um, who you're dealing with and, and which which the telco is. The banks definitely uh, are going to need, need a lot of hand-holding um, throughout the process. Got it. Um, in terms of actual sales cycle, though, for banks, obviously there will be some variance, but w what's the typical sales cycle for a bank? Uh, you know, I, we, we, we started talking to financial institutions uh, you know, we really launched the service in January 2015. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's it's too soon for us to tell. Uh, but we have, you know, we have banks that uh, um, we, you know, it's clearly going to be two, three year sales cycle. And we have others who, uh, you know, reach out to us and, and want to want to have deployments within 90 days. Uh, so it's really all over the place. And I think I think it's too early to, to tell. But I would look to other 
uh, enterprise software sales into banks, and then and we consider those comparable. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't a, a, a piece of data that you just back test and and plug in behind the scenes into your into your underwriting process. In order to uh, um, deploy this, the customer has to consent to share their digital footprint, which means you have to change or modify the application process. And for uh, for, for for banks, especially banks in emerging markets, um, that usually involves multiple departments and multiple sign-offs, and that's just you know, part of part of the process of uh, of scaling the business. Got it. Um, and so for, I guess you mentioned that it's still relatively early, but in terms of actual consumer consent, how much, um, how much are you guys seeing in terms of how consumers are actually um, sort of um, uh, are, are consenting to, uh, to sort of leveraging these data sources to help them get uh, more affordable loans? In the markets we operate, like uh, Indonesia and India and the Philippines, um, Peru, we see very high um, consent rates. Um, you know, 80, 90 plus percent, uh, and and we believe that the peop- uh, a portion of the people who are not consenting are also people who uh, uh, wouldn't be paying back. So there's a con- there's a selection bias there, where if you don't tend to pay back, you you're less likely to want to share the information. Um, I will caveat that with you know, we've never done an employment in Germany, and we know uh, you know German uh, you know Europe and German uh, Germany specifically have have um, big reservations about sharing personal data. Um, so I think I think you will get some variation by country, uh, but in the markets where most of our deployments are, there's very low um, uh, uh, financial services penetration, and what we've seen is is digitally savvy customers more than willing to share that information in exchange for superior or more convenient access to financial services. Got it. Um, in terms of sort of the areas, um, uh, you know that um, that that Lendo might have received, and Lendo and sort of the other um, uh, providers of non-traditional data sources and underwriters of loans that leverage non-data uh, non-traditional data sources. A lot's been made of data usage and sort of the boundaries of underwriting and and possibly the fear of digital redlining. Um, wanted to just get your take in terms of you know how founded sort of that criticism is, and and if you think that'll actually hold up over time. Well, I, I think it's a really important issue. Um, uh, you know, in in the markets we operate, the default situation is there's not a lot of access to credit. So regulators have have embraced us, um, uh, and we've had a lot of support. In fact, many of the bank infos we get are through the regulators. Um, I think that uh, in the in the U.S., um, you know, the default situation is you can get credit. So we need to tread very carefully. In, in how um, uh, in, in the changes to the underwriting process. Um, that said, there's you know there's a large underbanked population, uh, immigrants, you know, recent graduates from from, from school. Um, uh, you know there there are people who who have good digital footprints but don't have uh, good traditional credit histories, and I think there is an opportunity uh, in regards to. Um, uh, to deployment in a market like like the U.S., uh, it, it turns out that it, for online lenders, fraud is a big issue, and because it's very easy to steal someone's identity here in the U.S. Um, so th- that's a problem we've solved by using the massive data set that someone has in their phone and in their social 
social network, we're able to confirm they are who they say they are. Uh, and you know, you, you, you know, someone could could in the middle of the night get access to your 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 name and social security and date of birth, uh, and and without you knowing it, apply for a loan. But if someone got a hold of your phone uh, or had access to your social network, uh, you you'd know pretty fast. Uh, so that's not a particularly scalable um, uh, fraud. So I think uh, uh, a fraud angle. So I think in the U.S. Um, the big opportunity is around fraud prevention, um, as opposed to um, uh, uh, modifying the underwriting. The other thing in the underwriting is, uh, and we've talked to regulators about this, is the idea of, of you know, can you use this for what's uh, called denied account recovery? Um, and you know, I think it varies by what lender you're talking to, but but a lot of lenders feel very comfortable saying, you know, our regulated and approved underwriting process would deny credit. We're going to we're going to use this additional information to essentially uh, give us extra comfort so that we're able to to uh, extend credit in cases where we couldn't. Um, and uh, that that seems to be something we're getting a lot of uh, we're getting a lot of inquiries about in the in the U.S. and uh, markets. Interesting. Got it. Um, I guess more broadly, though, in terms of the actual regulatory sort of response to not just uh, not just Lendo, but to the other companies, uh, there seems to be uh, you know slight hesitation in terms of using these data sources. I guess it, in a world where um, did you foresee a world in which actually it's not just on the verification process that you're operating in the United States, but also sort of in the underwriting. Uh, process as well. I guess, do you see sort of regulatory attitudes shift over time towards being more accepting and, and sort of more encouraging of using these uh, these data sources? You talked about the un and underbanked consumers in the U.S., and I think there are between 60 to 70 million, so it seems like there's still, even if the default in the United States is to say yes, it still seems like there's a large market um, that, that companies like Lendu could be um, could be helping. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think over time, um, regulators are going to everywhere are going to embrace this because it works um, and it creates a more stable uh, financial uh, system and it and it, and it uh, creates a more inclusive financial system. But I do think that the innovation is going to happen abroad uh, and then get imported into the U.S. Uh, um, uh, you know, because because we have something that you know works relatively well and there's lots of reasons, uh, lots of incentives to keep it the way it is. Um, but the, but the real story here is that financial services is going to go through the same transition that media went through back, at, uh, back in the 90s. And that's that financial services has historically been regulated uh, by jurisdiction um, uh, you know, at the borders. You know, you, you, if you live in Ohio, you, can, you, know, you have to be licensed to get a loan or get a bank account uh, in Ohio. And you know, and uh, you know that was uh, that was fine in, a, in an era where it costs fifty dollars to move money around, and and uh, there's you know, a small number of players. But what's happening is just like media has gone global, um, financial services are going global, and you're going to have lenders in Singapore using software uh, in South Africa and capital from London to give loans in Ohio, and. Uh, you know, I don't. When it costs a penny to move money around the world, um, it's going to happen. And I don't think uh, regulators anywhere have really thought that through. And I, I think that uh, uh, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. Uh, and it's happening very fast. So uh, the the head of the Bank of England um, kind of summed it up best at Davos, where he said, 
you know, we used to think as bankers that regulation would protect us against innovation, but we don't realize that there are new entrants who don't who don't acknowledge our rules, and we run the risk of uh, the uberization of finance. Uh, I think that's that's true. You know, if you were a uh, if you were a, a, a cab operator in Munich, you felt pretty pretty safe because you had the license to issue uh, you know to run the cat taxi company. And if you're a uh, you know if you're a bank in uh, in Mexico, uh, you may feel like you're the you're the main game in town. But uh, you know technology and the internet doesn't really work that way. Got it. That's uh, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, I guess just one last question tied to the point you made above. Um, what are some of the other broader trends that you've been seeing sort of shaking out in uh, in the space? Sure. This is a great time to be a fintech innovator. Um, one of the things that we're seeing is uh, uh, the modularization um, or what some people would call the unbundling of financial services. So, um, you know, there are entire service, there, 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 you know, it used to be that if you wanted to offer, uh, say, a deposit product, you needed the branches, uh, you needed the, the compliance department, you needed the vaults, you needed, you needed the massive, massive infrastructure to do that. Uh, today there are services that will act as the, 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 the deposit holder of record. Uh, if you wanted to do collections, used to be you had to do it all yourself. Uh, today there are services that will do collections for you, um, and you know just just like AWS uh, or Amazon cloud services have made it very easy to fire up 200 servers and shut them down and really have it on demand. Other elements of the financial services stack are becoming available as services, and that allows people to mix and match and, and make new offerings. Um, so that's really exciting. Second really big trend and reason it's a great time to be an innovator in financial services is the proliferation of the smartphone. Um, it, it radically changes the, the, the cost structure. Uh, uh, it radically changes the offering you can, um, can give. Uh, and it also um, it, it, it piggybacks on changing customer expectations. Uh, and and it, it also generates an enormous amount of data that can be used for risk management. And if you think of you know, what is financial services, essentially at its core is, is risk properly pricing risk. Um, so so the, the, the phone combined with the cloud, which allows for massive algorithms and, and massive analysis of this data, I think the, uh, the, the, the smartphone connected to the cloud uh, connected to algorithms is is really going to shake up financial services, uh, and then the, the the other big trend we see is the digitization of money. Um, you know, it's it's become with software and data, it's become a lot easier to um, to move money, to um, uh, to offer payment uh, and money movement services, and I think uh, you know bl blockchain technologies play a role there. But I think you're going to see a lot of innovation uh, in First in remittance, and then in uh, retail purchases, but ultimately um, those are all connected in as part of financial services. And you see financial services disrupted. Interesting. So, just one last question on that last point about digitization of money. Do you see uh, when when you mentioned blockchain, do you see it more proliferating sort of as an underlying protocol with a sort of a decentralized ledger, or do you see it um, as actually you know as sort of Bitcoin as the currency itself as something that's going to be the broader trend. Well, uh, I think uh, consumers like 
uh, like things denominated in in uh, their local currency. So I think the uh, from a consumer's standpoint, um, it would be in, in, in local currency. Uh, but what, what's under the hood is a blockchain, a, you know, a distributed, a, a high-performance distributed ledger. Uh, I'm not smart enough to predict what high-performance distributed ledger that will be, um, uh, but I think, you know, clearly uh, distributed ledgers and cryptographic value transfer is is on par with with HTTP or or SMTP. I mean, this is this is foundational te technology that's going to probably have as big of an impact as uh, as the DNS servers did and and uh, at the emergence of ARPANET. Um, so it's it, it's it's really really exciting. Got it. Um... Jeff, thank you so much for your time. This has been really interesting, and it's been fantastic to hear your perspective on lending, on uh, sort of the the disruption that's happening, and, and sort of the broader themes as well. So really, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. My, my pleasure. L look forward to next time. Thank you again. Take care now.